Welcome to season two of the Nonprofit Experience. I'm Sandy Sear, Managing Editor for the Philanthropy Journal. In our first episode of the season, nonprofit consultant Stacy Barfield and philanthropist Chuck Recor discuss the importance of investing in human capital and the role of a nonprofit board. I'm Stacy Barfield. I am a nonprofit consultant. Uh, previously an executive director of a couple of nonprofits, and prior to that I had a corporate background. And, and I'm Chuck Recor. Uh, I'm a, a philanthropist slash donor. Uh, and for my day job, uh, I'm a managing director at uh, Merrill Lynch. Okay, so Chuck, I think a few years back you started an initiative to develop nonprofit leaders, and I was very fortunate to be part of that initiative. And um, can you talk a little bit about it? It goes back seven or eight years. What had happened was that uh, in, in my philanthropy, I would give organizations money, and I was very frustrated that uh, we had no way could we tell exactly where the money went or, or how it got used. And it did good things, we know that, but it wasn't connected to anything. And so I had asked one organization, I said, you know, if, if you had a surprise $5,000 gift, what would you do with it? And they said, well, you know, if we could do anything we wanted to do with it, we'd, we would take it and we'd give it to our nurses. This was a hospice. And uh, give out little bonuses because they didn't have that many nurses. So I said, all right, well, great. I'll give you a $5,000 check. And I gave them the $5,000 check, and they put it in their operating budget, and there was no bonuses. And I realized at that point that uh, you needed to be a little more uh, prescriptive in what your, what your expectation was if you are going to get money. So I said, well... I think what I'll do, if I'm going to really try to change the way an organization sees the world, is I've got to inspire the, the leadership. And there's a lot of leadership out here when you look at the nonprofit communities that are really talented people. But for one reason or another, they don't feel comfortable creating and innovating. They're, they're more of the execution model. Either the board has told them to do that, or they're just so overwhelmed with work that they don't have the time to innovate. So I thought, well, you know, maybe the answer here is to do a couple things. One is to, to find a program that's inspiring for management. And then secondly, rather than just uh, haphazardly send one person a year, you, you had to have critical mass. So I said, well, let's, let's, instead of spreading money all over the community and all different focuses, let's sit down and send 14 or 15 people a year to Harvard uh, and, and see what, what comes of it. So that's, that was the genesis that started it. And, of course, we're, we're well over 100 now. So here in the Triangle, we have so many good universities, and many of them have nonprofit programs. Why did you choose Harvard? Now, well, that's a great question. You know, actually, Harvard asked me the same question. Harvard said, well, why don't you use Duke? And I said, well, Duke's a great organization. UNC's a great organization. But if I said to somebody, gee, I want to send you to Duke, they go, I'd go to Duke. I could drive down the street on my own and go to Duke. The second part of that is, if you send them locally, then they go home and they're still really engaged in their business. They're not totally focused on the leadership education that they're supposed to be getting. So you have to get them out of town, so to speak. Uh, Harvard's a great place. And I also said to them, I said, you know, if, if I lived in Boston, I'd send people to Duke. And they, they figured that one out. Harvard as a teaching organization is unique too, but it doesn't matter. There's a lot of great universities out there. It's just that it has a great appeal. And if you say to someone, I'd like to send you to Harvard, generally they go, that's, that's very interesting. You've got their attention. Yeah, I'd say having been an attendee at the program you know, that, that we'll probably talk about a little bit later, the credibility 
that the name Harvard lends to your resume and to your donors, your other stakeholders, is pretty impressive. Yeah, I would, I would hope so. I mean, uh, Harvard, Harvard's a very, you know, the story about Harvard is this. I had gone to a program, uh, a little workshop program, not in nonprofits, it's a separate. But when they do these programs, the faculty and the deans make themselves available and you can actually have dinner with them, et cetera, things like that. So one, one of the programs I went to, I said to the, the, the dean there, I said, so what's so great about Harvard? You know, I challenged him and he said, well, a couple things. He said, one, uh, we don't pay our professors the most money. I thought that was interesting. Yale and MIT pay more. He said, we don't uh, mandate that they do original research unless they want to. He said, and we don't mandate that they publish unless they want to. We mandate that they teach. He said, and in return, what we say is we'll bring you the most engaged students that we can find. But if you find out in no time at all you don't like teaching, you leave Harvard. But if you like teaching, you stay. And so what you end up with is you end up with a, a, a core cadre of educators who are really very theatrical in nature, very mesmerizing. They really know how to engage the student body as opposed to simple lecturing. And, and so that, that's the magic when you go there, and you went, obviously. Um, the, the professors are just fascinating. They are, definitely. So going back to something you said earlier, um, you mentioned philanthropy versus donation. Mm -hmm. You know, can you kind of talk about that a little bit? What's the distinction yeah, to you? Yeah, from, from my perspective, there, there, there are three participants uh, in the nonprofit community. There's the management, which, uh, which includes everybody in an organization that, that makes it happen in a nonprofit organization. There's the board of the nonprofit organization who should be giving direction and leadership and oversight. And then there is the donor or philanthropic basis, as I refer to it. Most people see themselves as donors, and that's simply I'm going to write a check. Um, they, don't, they don't see themselves as philanthropists. The difference being is philanthropy is strategic in nature. I'm attempting to, to resolve an issue that is important to me rather than just giving them money because somebody sent me a letter and said, would you give me some money? This is a two-way street because the board doesn't engage the donors past the money, nor does management. And yet, these are people who said, I'm interested enough to care about you. I'm interested enough to give money. No one seems to ask for their intellectual participation, which I think is, is sad. So there's two components here. One is that we have to make the board and management engage the donor, and then we have to convince the donor that they're really not donors, they're philanthropists, and they have to be more engaged. It's not just simply about writing a check. It's about, it's about buying into what, what they're, they're solving. And there's a couple ways to do this. I mean, one of the ways that I think is, no one does, and it's incredibly no cost to do it, and that's to simply open your board meetings to your donors. Invite them. So I want you to come sit and listen to how the board governs this organization. Now, that's a, that's a risk. If, you, if your board's not managing things well, you don't want to do that. But if you, if you wouldn't do that, if you wouldn't open your board meeting to your donors, uh, then you need to think about how your, your meetings go and what your board's about. And what that does, by the way, if you think about the average nonprofit, probably has four to six board meetings a year. Every one of those is an opportunity to market the quality of the organization and what they do to the, to the, the, donate, the donating or the philanthropic community. So it's an opportunity to raise funds. 
so they can do a meeting that they normally would do, and, and yet they can use it as a fundraising opportunity. Plus the fact, I'll tell you right now, when you say to the board, we're going to have some special guests that are going to sit in the back of the room and watch you at the board meeting, they dress up. <laughs> they dress up physically and mentally, and they come prepared, and they do a much better job than they do when they're left to their own devices. So there's a little challenge. Put a little edge into this thing. Yeah, I do think the challenge as someone who's you know worked in a nonprofit is that you want to encourage healthy debate in a board, and not all boards know how to debate healthily. Yeah. And sometimes putting someone else in the room may either suppress the ability to do that or um, maybe not show well for the nonprofit. Yeah, well, I think there's a couple things there. One is, is clearly you need a strong uh, chairman of the board. Whoever that person is, they need to be able to manage the organization and, and create the dialogue and get people to, to speak. The issue of say, saying there's things that maybe the, the public not, shouldn't hear, which I think is quite frankly pretty rare in a nonprofit. Most things should be transparent. Um, but where you say I, we really have something that's private, let's say it's compensation for the staff. Um, you just go in executive session, you ask the guests to recuse themselves and go out and have a cup of coffee for a little bit, and then you, once you resolve it, you bring it back in the room. Um, I mean, that's really the litmus test. If you say to yourself, I wouldn't have people watch my board function, well, that's a, that's a real, that's a, that's a flag. That's a call to change things. You need to get, get it worked out. Um, a little edgy, you know, and I think probably one of the things uh, that's important is to, is to create an environment, which is part of what the whole Harvard 100 is about, is to create an environment where nonprofit leaders are willing to take a risk, to step out of the norm and say, I'm going to do a little something a little different. I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. Um, so with the Harvard 100, we have over 100 now, we, they get together twice a year. To, to stay in contact, and they talk amongst themselves all the time. You're creating a, a safe spot so that I can, I can try something that no one else is trying. And if it works, I can report it back to my peers and say, this really worked. This is a good idea. What's normally happening is there's, there's no cross-fertilization. If I'm doing something that works, I don't pick up the phone and call somebody across the street in another nonprofit and say, hey, you know, we just did this. This really worked. Everybody's in silos, so the Harvard Hunter, for one thing, breaks down the silos. Um, it does that because people have a, a shared experience, and then they have a common language. And, and you know, because you went to Harvard, Harvard is very big on the difference between uh, outputs and outcomes. And right. when you talk to somebody that hasn't been to Harvard, you say, what's your, what's your outcomes? They kind of look at you and they go, they really don't know what you're talking about. But when you get in a room with the people who've gone to Harvard, that, that flowing dialogue, because they all know what they're talking about to start with, um, helps break down the silos. It does, and I think it trickles down in organizations, and I think it trickles out in the community as we talk, you know, as we have more of that common language that we establish, the common models that we use to evaluate the, um, that shared experience of thinking about something in a completely different way than you might have thought about it otherwise. Yeah. I think it's interesting the programs the Harvard programs that that we talk about as part of the Harvard 100 
initiative are, um, there are two different programs. One is designed for board members, and it's a governance program. And the other is designed for staff members, for staff leadership, which is a performance measurement program that talks about evaluating, you know, outputs versus outcomes versus impact and and ways that you can look at that and ways to make your organization more efficient, um, more mission-driven, mission-focused, and um, more impactful, ultimately. So So it's the zero question. It is, question zero. Question zero, which is... uh... Harvard uh, created value, and the question zero is what 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 are we attempting to do, and how do we measure it? And I can't tell you when you when you one or two of those things are missing in lots of nonprofits. That's right. And I don't mean that the executive director can't tell you what they're attempting to do, but what they're attempting to do is not uniformly shared by everybody involved, including the board and the donors. That's right. It has to be very clear that we're all trying to do the same thing whatever that is, we've agreed upon it, and then we've got some way to measure success. Right, and do it in the same way, because you can have a stated mission that everyone agrees on, mm-hmm. but the reason for that mission could be you know, different in everyone's mind. And if my mission is to provi- provide affordable housing, yeah. why am I doing that? Am I doing that because we are you know, tight on land? Am I doing that because... Uh, of inflation and, and rents going up and mortgages going up so high that, that the working, I guess we'd call it the working poor, the working middle class can't afford it? Um, am I doing that because we're not paying a living wage to people? And so when you decide why you're doing it, and sometimes it's all of those reasons, but when you decide why you're doing it, then you figure out what you need to start tracking. Do we need to start focusing on living wage? Do we need to start focusing on you know, what the rents are? Do we need to start focusing on um, you know expansion of land or, or availability of land to build on, so all those things kind of you know they they are all factors. But what is it that you're actually tracking? Because one of the things that we learned at Harvard was, what's the point of collecting data if you're not going to act on it? Sure. Well, you know it's interesting in the, in the hierarchy of information, data is just raw data is raw data, and then in a pyramid, data becomes information. And then information becomes knowledge, and then knowledge theoretically becomes wisdom, which is the top of the pyramid and pretty elusive. So I've got a, another question for you. You, know, you mentioned the idea of investing in leadership development. You know, why do you think it's so important to invest in, in what's called human capital? Yeah, well, human capital is the, the most important asset any organization has. I mean, bricks and mortar are fine, processes are fine. But you have to have people. First off, people are creative and resilient, all right? And organizations without creative, resilient people tend to die of atrophy. I mean, if you think about it, the assets of a nonprofit organization go out the door every night, get in their car, and go home. And if you don't, if you don't engage those people with challenging, interesting work, same for the board, by the way. If you don't engage the board with challenging and interesting work, you, you lose their participation. It works this way, it seems to me, from my observations. There are two kinds of boards. There's one, those boards that sort of overmanage and tell the executive director every single thing they have to do and micromanage. Then there are the, the other kind of board. The other extreme is the board that says, you know, you tell us what to do, executive director. So the executive director now has two jobs, um, and that, that inhibits their ability to grow and, and to innovate. 
because they're so busy doing all the other things. And, and if the board tells them everything to do, they don't feel they have the authority to innovate. And so trying to get the, the board to recognize their role is critical. But their human capital, the board's human capital, is, is critical. You, you man the board with bright people, and then you, you bore them to tears with mundane, routine things that really they don't even need to worry about. I mean, a lot of times you go to a board meeting and you, you listen and say, well, we're going to accept this report. There's no requirement to accept reports. You say, why do you have that procedure to vote to accept a report? And they go, well, we've always done it that way. Yeah, but there's no requirement. you got to accept the financials. I got that. But short of that, so everything is sort of done because it was done before. And, and the, the board has to be given things that are meaningful, that's worthy of their time and their intellect. Um, and that may not be fundraising. So, you know, strategic plans, certainly. Uh, but a lot of those are boilerplate. Maybe the most important one is a succession plan. Um, it's not if you lose your executive director. It's when you lose your executive director. And generally, you lose them when you least want to lose them. All right, that's the case. Uh, now, there's plan where I'm going to retire in several years, and there's the other one where I'm moving because my spouse is moving and I'm going to go with them, or I'm, I've got a medical problem, etc., or something's happened where the board has to let the executive director go. The succession plan is critical because if you have no succession plan, the donors pull back immediately. The first thing that happens when you lose your charismatic executive director is the donors say, well, let me hold back and see, see what happens next year. So you get yourself in a funding spiral the wrong way immediately. That's part of the problem. If you don't have someone in the organization who can step up and run it for six months to a year, then you have to have someone on the board who can step down and run it for a year. And a lot of organizations don't have that. They don't have the people in the organization and not training them to step up, and they don't have anybody on the board who would step down. That's just a recipe for failure. That kind of challenge of thinking and making sure all the things are in great detail, that's worthy of the board's time and attention. Yeah. Other things are not. talked a lot about board, the role of the board. You also are involved, I know, with the National Association of Corporate Directors mm -hmm. and um, have focused a lot of their efforts in the triangle towards nonprofit boards. So can you talk a little bit about that? And yeah, I think, I think that uh, for some reason, well, there's a couple issues. I think first, for some reason, people think there is a difference, a significant difference between a for-profit board and a non-profit board. And I would say in terms of the responsibilities, there's virtually no difference. Uh, so maybe the legal issues for a public company, that's for sure. But uh, board responsibilities are serious. It's a, it's a job. It's, 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 it's serious. The second part is, for nonprofits, it is the entry-level board position for most people. That's where they start their board experience and, and if they want to become directors and corporate directors over time, you start in a nonprofit and you work your way up into a for-profit private company and then get into a for-profit public company if you could do that. Um, so there's a requirement that uh, if I were to look at a board and I said, well, you know, just in general, do I assess a nonprofit board to be as functional as a for-profit board? The answer is no. Uh, and certainly don't, then a public company board 
at the, the high end of that scale. So there has to be an assumption by the chair that the, the, the board needs training. They have to be trained because they really don't know how to act. Uh, it starts with simple things like job descriptions. Um, and it's a great story. I, I went on a, a board, a national board, and um, I, I, I said to them, I said, hey, well, we want you to join the board. I said, well, that's really nice. I said, would you send me the job description? What did, what did you expect me to do on the board? They said, well, we don't have a job description. It's a national organization. I said, why don't you have a job description? They said, well, everybody on the board knows how to be a director. They don't need a job description. So I said, so you have 15 people on the board. You have 15 different job descriptions. There's some overlap, but there's some gaps. And then the problem with that is that if, if you haven't a defined set of expectations, a clearly defined set of expectations, then everybody makes up their own. So if, if you ask, I would say micromanagement, if you ask detailed questions, maybe I'm saying, you know, that's Stacy. She's a micromanager. She's, you know, and Stacy looks at me, and I don't ask any questions. She says, "Yeah, he's just here for lunch." And so the board polarizes because we don't realize that those are two acceptable ways to to interact. So the second part of that in a job description, which I think is the most critical thing a board can have, is that it, it's a dynamic job description. It changes over time. Um, and, and how do you evaluate a board member if you don't have a written description of what they're supposed to do? How do you say, look, this person's not doing the job? And I would say on nonprofit boards, there's almost everyone I talk to says there's two or three people on the board who just aren't doing the job. And, um, you know, they hang around because they like being a director or they like coming to the meetings or they feel it gives them relevance in life, which is all wonderful, but that doesn't mean it helps the organization. So one of the things I advocate, again, this is the type of thing that can happen in a, in a field of bright lights, um, is to, and I mean, I've done this when I've been on a, the chairman of a nonprofit, um, we try to get more candidates for the board than the board seats are available. The board seats come available every year and people who are on the board a lot of times say, I'd like to run, you know, I'd like to keep the seat. What normally happens, unfortunately, is people say, oh, that's fine, you keep the seat, end the conversation. And I say, that's not the way to do it. What you want to have is you want the nominating committee to say, hey, these are the skill sets we need on our board. Here are the people we have on our board. Here's the skill sets they have. It's a little mm -hmm. matrix, it's mm -hmm. a skill, skill needs matrix. Uh, and here's the people who are running for re-election. And here are the new candidates and their skill sets. And that package goes to every board member, and they have a non-public voting. Okay, secret ballot. Because what happens is the board will take the people that aren't functional and vote them off the board. See, there's nothing worse if I'm on the board. If the chairman comes in and says, Oh, well, Bob's leaving, and Sue's coming in, and this is Sue. Everybody say, hi, Sue. Hi, Sue. And uh, all in favor of voting for Sue on the board, and she's there, and you can't argue that. You know, you don't want to be the, the, the one person out and say, wait a minute, I'm not, I don't know this person. So you go, sure. And you timidly put up your yes, but you really, what you just did to the board is said, your, your voice doesn't count. In the organization I'm asking you to run and oversee, your voice doesn't count. It's been decided by a small group of people. Now, 
if the nominating committee says, here's the candidates and here are their skill sets and we recommend this person, that's fine. But the board still should have secret ballot ability. And when I've done that in, in organizations, I've had people come to me and they'll say, do you think I'm going to get reelected? And I go, do you think you're going to get reelected? You know the job description. You go read the job description. If you want to market yourself to the board and in, in, in hopes to keep your job, that's your, your call. We're not going to say you can't do that. Because that then they have to make some real tough decisions about just you know how much they want the job. And they run the risk that they go to somebody and the people say, you know, I, I would vote for you, but you didn't do this and this and this. You didn't attend the meetings. You didn't do this. You didn't give the raise the money we asked you to do. You were on this committee and it, nothing happened. So that dialogue is, is and that opportunity is how you one of the ways you, you improve the quality of the board. Um, and I've had people they've where we've had people go off the board. They've been mad, every one of them. <laughs> and but everyone has come back six nine months later and said, you know, I, I probably sh should have stepped off the board on my own. Because it's not about personalities. It's not about you're, you're a bad person. It's about we are all here to guide this organization. If, if my ability to guide or the skill sets that I have are no longer needed or we can replace them with someone who's got better skill sets who is engaged, I should step down. It's about the organization, not about the individual. Right, and I think it's about those board members having that kind of self-awareness because... In a lot of cases, you see board members who don't feel that they have permission to go. They might have been burned out years ago, but they feel like keeping that seat warm yeah. is a service they're doing, which truly is a disservice to the organization. I think it's better to have an empty seat than it is to have someone in the seat who is ineffective and could potentially impact the motivations of the others in the room. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, a lot of times I'll hear this we talk to another and say it's really hard to get good board people. Well, I think that's true and not true. I think first off, if you don't give them challenging work, it's hard to get them. And if you and, and if you do get them on the board and you don't give them challenging work, they leave mentally. I mean I I, I went on a board and, and they had asked me multiple times, I turned down multiple times, it got me in a moment of weakness and I said, okay, I'll I'll do Went on the board, and the first the, the had an orientation for the new board members, and I had knew the organization pretty well. Uh, and then the first thing they did after the orientation, they had a board meeting, and and I mean right away after the orientation, and then the chair they made some proposal and they wanted to vote, and all the people who would with the orientation knew nothing about the topic, uh, and the chair said, "Well, how are you voting?" And, and so they voted, but you just said, you know, you don't count here. You're here to rubber stamp things. And even something simple like that, when you call for a vote, the chair should have a script, a very simple script that says, I'm going to call for a vote, and here are your choices. You can say, I agree. You can say, I abstain. You can say, I vote no. You can go on the record if, if it's important enough to you, and I want you to vote your conscience. But a lot of times what they'll say is, oh, we need, we need a unanimous. This has to be unanimous. It doesn't have to be unanimous. You're there to have a different point of view. And so if you give them, if the chair gives them permission to abstain or vote no and says, this isn't, this isn't about you, it's about your opinion, and it, we're not, not, you're not putting yourself in a hole here, 
then you then you have a better participation. And so uh, boards are critical. Boards are critical, and I think most of them are dysfunctional. Yeah, I can say that. Again, as a consultant, I get to experience a lot of different nonprofits. And even yesterday, I sat in on a meeting of a foundation, a very well-established foundation uh, board meeting, and I was amazed at how productive and engaged and um, inquisitive the board was about some of the, the recommendations or um, strategies brought forward by the committees, the board committee. So the committees were acting very effectively, and then the board, the greater board, was you know questioning them and, and challenging things at sometimes. And it was probably the most healthy board experience I've seen. And comparing that to some other boards that I've seen where, as you mentioned, they're rubber stamping or they're disengaged or um, you know really there to build their resume. It's yeah. a night and day difference as to how well the nonprofit is functioning. And I, I think partially in the recruiting side, and you have to be very clear, again, with the job description and, and why you want somebody on the board. And one time somebody called me and said, we want you on the board. I said, you know, what, what, what would you like me to do? And they said, well, we don't have, you don't want you to do anything. We just want you on the board. And I said, well, then why would I be on the board? I mean, you obviously need, have a need. Or, or, and why would I go on a board that didn't want me to do anything? So it, the, the board has opportunity to improve. The organizations have opportunity to get the donor. And it gets back to, you know, what I've talked about in inspired management, which is the whole team. And it does where the rubber meets the road for the organization. Engaged boards who know how to be a board. And, and then enlightened philanthropy. If you get those three going, you've got a, a winning combination, I think, for the community. Well, I'll say as someone who has had the privilege to um, be a recipient of your scholarship to Harvard. Um, and on behalf of all the people who've gone to Harvard and all those people who've benefited from that experience, um, thank you. No, I've been delighted to do it. Thank you for listening to The Nonprofit Experience. If you like what you hear, please support our work. You can rate us on iTunes, share us with a friend, and donate to the project at go.ncsu.edu forward slash give to PJ. DNE is a project of the Philanthropy Journal. Our managing editor is Sandy Sear. Our graduate editor is Kristen Gullihue. Our graduate assistant editor is Preston Whitwer. And our multimedia producer is David Mueller. This episode was produced by David Mueller, who also wrote our theme music. For more information on this and other episodes, visit us at philanthropyjournal.org. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Nonprofit Experience and subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play.